So let me begin with where I think we should begin when we talk about Christian liberty and issues of conscience. It's interesting that Christian liberty, as it's framed, is typically reduced to matters of conscience in the evangelical church. When we talk about Christian liberty, immediately our minds go to, okay, well, what can we do and what shouldn't we do? What can we do? What's permissible? What's forbidden for, for the Christian? That's the first thing typically that would pop into our minds. And of course, as you know, it is a tendency amongst evangelicals to obsess over behavior. And so that's not surprising that that often is the case. But historically speaking and biblically speaking, Christian liberty starts with something that is much deeper and much more wonderful than any of those questions about, well, what can I do and what can't I do? Christian liberty starts with the glorious truth that we have been set free. We have been set free by Christ and we've been set free in Christ. And we have been set free in him from sin and from its dominion over us. We have been set free in Christ from death and from fear of the grave. I mean, this should excite you, right? Like, thank God for Jesus. We've been set free by Christ and in Christ from Satan and from bondage to him, the power of evil and darkness that's in the world. We've been set free from that. And we've been set free in Christ from bondage under the law and the fear of condemnation that that brings. That's gone. So whenever, in this church anyway, so this is, let me just kind of aside really quickly. What we're aiming to do today is to set a tone, right, for how we want to think about these things as a body. So in this church, as far as the elders are concerned, when we talk about Christian liberty, it starts there. It starts there, that we are free in Christ from all of those things. And then we can talk about a lot of other really good stuff in wisdom, but we're always doing that within, you know, that understanding of what Christ has accomplished <clears throat> and the truth that in Christ we really are free. We are free unto righteousness. And we are free to live before God with a clear conscience. That is a tremendous blessing that we could live honestly before God with a clear conscience, knowing that we have been reconciled to him through the work of Christ in our place. So Christian liberty begins there, and it is never less than all of that. So within that wonderful framework, there are specific issues that are good for us to consider and that we should consider. And so the aim is for our consideration of those specific issues to always take place underneath the highest of those great truths, what Christ has done. So let me start now, as I've made those comments by way of introduction, let me start to get a little bit more particular, okay, in terms of the conversation for today. So if I've got a few headings in my notes. I'll happily give them to you. This isn't a sermon. This is a talk, right? So I'm not going to be expositing scripture so much as reasoning from biblical principle. So heading number one, at least for me in my mind, is I'm going to do a little bit of chalking of the field biblically. So I'm going to chalk the field biblically. That expression is just kind of like we're going to put paint chalk on the field so that we have a field to play on. We kind of know the ground rules and the parameters. Here we go. Put some handles on the thing. So three passages of scripture that speak very pointedly to Christian liberty in a kind of wisdom issue sort of way and issues of conscience would be Romans chapter 14, 
1 Corinthians chapter 8, and then 1 Corinthians 10, 23 and following, the rest of that chapter. Those would be great texts for you to read if you want to think about some of the practical concerns of living together as brothers and sisters in the church. Romans 14, 1 Corinthians 8, 1 Corinthians 10, 23 and following. So if you read these passages and you do a survey of these passages, they give us some of these like foundational truths, or you might even call them you know, like high-level truths that kind of govern everything underneath. I'm going to give us four. So you can kind of jot these down if you're taking notes or if you just want to listen, that's fine. So high-level or foundational, however you want to frame it, truths from those three passages. Number one, only God and God's word can bind the conscience. Number one, only God and God's word in particular, God's revelation to us can bind the conscience of any person. Number two, we are to love one another in the church and seek one another's good. We are to love one another, number two, and seek one another's good. All right, number three, there are weaker brothers and sisters who must be considered. There are weaker brothers and sisters in our body, in any church, that must be considered. Number four, we are not to pass judgment on one another over these issues, these issues of conscience and questions of liberty. So number four again, we are not to pass judgment on one another over these issues. So those are the the high-level truths that I am building from, and Ron, too, in terms of our perspective, those four truths govern everything that we're saying. So next heading in my, in my notes, on the weaker brother. So on or concerning the weaker brother. How many in the room are familiar with that language of the Apostle Paul, in particular in those passages, the weaker brother? Most in the room are. So Paul will write about Weaker brothers and sisters who are, I'm going to, well, I'm going to explain it right now. So here we go. If you're not familiar, absolutely fine. We need to consider like what or in particular who the weaker brother is. So the weaker brother is the following. And this is critical. A person who will or who would be pulled back into a lifestyle of sin as a result of being exposed to something. Say that again. The weaker brother is a person who will or would be pulled back into a lifestyle of sin as a result of being exposed to something. And that something could be a substance. It could be a scene in a movie. It could be playing a video game. It could be whatever, depending on the issue that we're considering. What the weaker brother is not This is equally critical. What the weaker brother is not is the most sensitive conscience in the room. The weaker brother is not the most tender, sensitive conscience in the room. So this kind of unpacking that a little bit more. The weaker brother also is not a hypothetical person. So the weaker brother is not a hypothetical person or situation. The weaker brother is a particular person, like a real human, 
with whom I, you, we are in relationship, who has a particular struggle that is known. I'm just going to lay all those things out again. The weaker brother is not a hypothetical person out there just floating around in some ethereal way. The weaker brother is a particular real person with whom we are in relationship who has a particular struggle that is known. So that's clear in Paul's writing. He's talking about real people, you know, who have a real particular struggle and are Potentially, if they were to be exposed, some of them have been, some of them could be exposed to this, then they will fall back into a lifestyle of sin. We're not just spinning out a bunch of what ifs here. Okay, that's the, the point. We are called quite clearly in Scripture to love our weaker brothers and sisters. The reason that they're called weaker is because. And this is, not, this is not a slight on them. I mean, you guys know this in terms of how we even think in our church, right? Like, we don't parade our own righteousness around. We point to the righteousness of Christ. We're not measuring people's you know, sanctification like a child's height against the wall. We're not doing that, right? But this is important that we would understand this, that the reason that they are called weaker is because, generally speaking, there is a lack of a theological understanding accompanied with a particular bend in their constitution that makes them prone to sin or struggle in a certain way, right? So that's where that kind of weaker idea comes from. We all have weaknesses. We all have bends in our frames. We all have theological blind spots, but some of our particular blind spots and bends manifest themselves in this way. Next heading in my notes, what issues of conscience are we talking about? So when you say Christian liberty and issues of conscience, what are we talking about? I'm just going to give some examples, some like pretty substantial ones. Obviously, we could name a bunch, but this is just to kind of get the, the ball rolling in your mind. So maybe the most obvious one in our American evangelical context is alcohol. Okay, it's just we'll talk about alcohol specifically in a minute. That's just one. That's the one that people immediately go to, but it's one. Another area would be media. So what kind of movies can we see or should we see or whatever? Uh, what kind of shows should we watch or what kind of shows, like in an old school sense, should we go to? You know, performances and things of that nature. What kind of music do we listen to? So media consumption. Another category, like what kind of establishments do we go to? So whether we're talking about places of food and drink or entertainment or whatever, what kind of places can we frequent? Another category would be food, diet. So I think it's pretty clear in our context, and often this is true in the church, people can be incredibly moral about food. Like, oh, well, is it organic? Is it Paleo? Is it keto? Is it macro system? What are, like, what are you doing with nutrition, right? I mean, people can be moral about those questions. Oh, you're eating processed food? You realize that's really bad, right? You know, you need to do a Daniel fast, you know, so that you might be healthy or whatever it is, right? So those are all kinds of things that come up. Fashion and clothing. 
What's permissible to wear? Questions of modesty are important. That's part of this conversation. But I mean, Christians through history have argued about what kind of fabric you can put on your body. You know, because it's blended fabric or whatever. So fashion and clothing. How can we dress? Should we dress in a trendy way or is that somehow worldly? Schooling for our kids. There's a big one. Churches split over this stuff, right? Is it okay to send my kids to public school? Is it okay to send them to a private school or do we all need to homeschool? Like that's a real question. That's an issue of conscience in, in Christian freedom. And then there's even things like holidays. So Halloween. Now, if people are saying, yeah, we want to go to seances and we want to um, like give offerings for the dead and all this kind of stuff, like All Hallows' Eve, okay, we need to talk about that. But like, can my kid dress up like a superhero and go get candy in the neighborhood? Depending on who you talk to, that could be a very divisive conversation. It's like, man, we, we could only, you know, they, some people, it's like, well, we can celebrate the Reformation on October 31st. But man, like you're going to go out in the neighborhood and get candy. I don't know. Right. This is what happens. These are all all issues of conscience. So that's just some examples for us. Like, how should we think about those things? So now next heading in my my notes, the pastors, as in the pastors, plural. The pastor's posture. So our posture here at CBC when it comes to these things. So these are big principles from us that we want to drive this church in terms of how we think about all of this. So if if you're a note taker, write them down. First, (coughs) if the Bible calls something sin, we will call it sin. If the Bible calls something sin, we will call it sin. No questions asked. Don't care how you feel. Don't care if you like it. I want you to like it. We want you to like it. I want to like it. Sometimes I don't. Feelings are irrelevant. Opinions don't matter. God's word does. Second thing. If the Bible doesn't call something sin, we will not call it sin. So that's the opposite side of that same coin. If the Bible does not call something sin, we will not call it sin. I don't care about prudence and wisdom. This is clear. If it's a clearly a biblical thing that is called sin, we'll call it that. If the scripture does not call it sin, we will not either. Again, God's word drives this, not our wisdom, not our thoughts. Next bullet point here on our posture. We will not, meaning the pastors in leading this church, we will not bind people's consciences where scripture doesn't. We will not bind people's consciences where scripture doesn't. So that means that we're not going to put extra biblical, like conscience binding requirements on you in terms of how we live. We're only going to bind consciences where scripture does. Next point. We will not allow the conscience of a single person or the consciences of a group of people, or the conscience of a pastor to dictate terms for the entire church. Say that again. We will not allow the conscience of a single person, the consciences of a group of people, or the conscience 
of a pastor or even the consciences of the pastors to dictate terms for the entire church. Next. We will lead us to seek a culture of love, consideration, and charity when it comes to all of these issues. So is there, a, is there something that governs my exercise of liberty? Yes. It's called love. Love for a weaker brother or sister is what would govern or limit my exercise of liberty that I have in Christ. We want to drive this that way. We want to seek a culture of love, consideration, and charity flowing both from the stronger to the weaker and also from the weaker to the stronger. Both ways are necessary. The stronger, those who see liberty and feel free and good about exercising that liberty need to be loving and charitable, kind, humble towards those who don't exercise liberties. And then in the reverse, those who are weaker and don't exercise liberties also need to be charitable towards those who do. And also, too, charity and forgiveness and all those things and love will be required in this, friends, because we are all imperfect and we will fail in this. No church gets this right all the time. Next big bullet point. We will not, again, we the pastors, will not make broad, sweeping prohibitions on issues of conscience for the entire church, but rather seek to love and consider one another as more important than ourselves say all that again. We will not make broad sweeping prohibitions on issues of conscience for the whole church, but rather we will seek to love and consider one another as more important than ourselves. That's the rule of love. So this is the pattern of the apostles. I said this in the sermon last week. Paul, for example, in these passages, Romans 14, 1 Corinthians 8, 1 Corinthians 10, he does not ever make a broad sweeping prohibition of a behavior. He doesn't say, because the issue is meat sacrifice to idols in those texts. He never says, under no circumstances in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ shall a person eat of meat that was sacrificed to an idol. He does not say that. He talks in, a, like in terms of wisdom and loving each other. That's what the exhortation is. It's not a prohibition. It's an exhortation to do something much harder, love each other. Next, big bullet point as far as our pastoral posture. We will seek to destroy self-righteousness in both directions. Self-righteousness in the stronger and self-righteousness in the weaker. Let me explain what I mean. People who exercise liberty, I'm gonna start with the stronger in the room. People that are like, I see the freedoms that I have in Christ, baby, and I, I enjoy them to the glory of God. For you, the temptation is always to be self-righteous towards people who do not feel the freedom to exercise that same liberty. There can be this sort of condescending arrogance. It's like, well, if you understood things better, if you had better theology, if you didn't have a conscience that was too sensitive, you too would understand and see, and you would be able to enjoy this with me. That is a horrible, unchristlike attitude. But then people who don't exercise certain liberties can also be very self-righteous. 
Well, clearly the most godly people are people who refrain from those kinds of things. You know, so I, in some way, am better for not exercising a liberty. That also is not a biblical, God-honoring way to think. So we're going to seek lovingly and yet unashamedly to blow all of that nonsense up. Next, we will seek to train all of our consciences corporately according to Scripture. So we're always being refined, I pray, by the Word of God. So your conscience and mine, all of our consciences are jacked up naturally. Now, we have the the law of God written on our hearts, right? So there are things that we clearly understand that are good and bad, right and wrong. But because of the fall and sin, our consciences are not a perfect guide. So we all need our consciences to be trained, to be changed according to the truth of Scripture. And so that will be the aim of the pastors always, is to see over time our consciences being brought into conformity with the revelation of God. Now, patience is required in this. This takes time. So we're not going to play this game of just like casting shade on people who don't get it yet or, you know, like shaming people into thinking like I think, mocking people who don't think as I do or do as I do. Not okay. Patience, charity, humility are required. Last thing I'm going to say in this piece, because I didn't know where else to put this, honestly, I'm going to speak personally for just a second. So I think most in the room know this with respect to one of these issues of conscience. So I do partake of alcohol. I drink alcohol. I don't get drunk because we understand that to be sin. Right? That's clear. But I make it a personal practice to never have a drink in front of someone associated with this church in any way without first having talked with them about alcohol, where they stand on it, and their history with it. I would not ever do that. I would not go grab a beer with you without us having first had a conversation about where you stand on all of this. Lest I just kind of foolishly and ignorantly say, oh yeah, well let's go do this or meet me here, and you might, you might be a weaker brother. You might be caused to stumble. Don't want to do that. This would obviously apply to other issues, right? All those kinds of categories that we thought about. Consider each other. Talk honestly about things. Say, hey, do you do this? What do you think about that? Like, do you want to go do this with me? I don't know how you feel about that. Just be normal and be charitable and kind. Next heading. This one's short. I've entitled this heading, A Healthy Place to Be. A Healthy Place to Be. So, A healthy place to be as a church is where issues of conscience and questions of Christian liberty are really not that much of a conversation within the church. I'm going to explain what I mean. A healthy place to be is where issues of conscience aren't really a conversation within the body. Certainly, I don't mean that we don't talk about wisdom and we don't talk about prudence and we don't talk about stewardship. Of course we do. But the environment that's healthy is one where people are free to participate in things, exercise liberty, and people are free not to participate. And there's no shade being cast either direction. And when I say it's not a conversation, I'm meaning that it's not divisive. It's not polarizing. It's not heated. 
Like there's not just a bunch of like debate and argument and mud being thrown all over the place over issues of liberty and conscience. When the church, when it's kind of like, yes, some of us participate in this, some of us don't, everybody's cool with it. It's just kind of white noise. That's a healthy environment. That's what we want. And I think, I mean, you guys could correct me if I'm wrong because I don't see everything perfectly. But from my perspective, that's largely been how CBC has operated for the three plus years we've been a church. And I pray that it just happens all the more. We're not having this discussion today because things have just gone off the rails. It just seemed like a wise thing to do, especially in light of some questions that were asked about a particular men's ministry idea called Theology on Tap. That prompted this. Nobody's upset and nobody's done anything wrong. We just like, you know, it might be good to teach on this. That's why we're here. All right. Now, lastly, on alcohol, (coughs) excuse me, specifically, because it is, alcohol is like the thing that often gets people worked up in the church. Like, can we? Because people aren't having the same, we're going to be having this conversation about marijuana, just to be clear. In our culture, we are. That's coming. And you can pray for your pastors, right? I mean, because this is not easy. Other kinds of substances, like narcotics and things, are not really controversial because most everybody's like, yeah, like that, that's just clearly not good. It like enslaves people and all these kinds of like, it just can't really be done in a way that's not harmful. So people aren't as worked up about other substances, but alcohol is a big deal in the American church. So it's important. I'm going to make a very brief little, I don't know, set of comments here about the American church and alcohol. And this is like a hundred thousand foot view. Like, how did we get here? It matters that we would understand why this particular thing just sets people on fire in the American church. So how did we as American evangelicals get to where we are? So historically speaking, there were two different sets of like great revivals in American history. One was called the first great awakening. One was called the second great awakening. America has always been characterized by revivalistic theology, which is another conversation for another time. But the second great awakening in particular was not really good at all. I mean, that, in my opinion, is an understatement. It was a very Pelagian, meaning like a man-driven kind of create a crisis within the man and humans can make the right decisions. Humans can conform themselves into, you know, God-honoring holiness and all this kind of business. And it was very manipulative, um, a lot I could say. But in the, in the wake of the Second Great Awakening, sections of the evangelical church in America joined forces with a social and political movement called Prohibition. So evangelical churches kind of joined with social and political forces in the temperance movement. And so because of that sort of hitching of the wagons, This is where the view of alcohol as inherently evil in our context came from. So this view became part and parcel of an evangelical outlook. If you were an evangelical in the wake of the Second Great Awakening, in the midst of the temperance movement, like you were on board with prohibition. And so the view in many streams of evangelicalism as a result of all this Things happen in history. They don't happen in a vacuum. As a result of all of this, in many places in the evangelical church, 
the thinking became to drink alcohol is sin, period. So the problem with that is that it doesn't square with the biblical witness. That's the issue. So the Bible does not, and we can talk about this, and we can take questions about this, or I'll happily talk to anybody about this. The Bible does not depict alcohol as inherently evil. It doesn't. The Bible also does not depict things like money, sex, power as inherently evil. But what alcohol, sex, power, money, all of those things have in common is that they are good gifts from a good God that we pervert and that we abuse. That's the problem. The problem is with our hearts. The issue is not with God and the issue is not with the gift. The issue is with us. Now, having said that, there are certainly many warnings in Scripture about the abuses of alcohol. Just like there are many warnings in Scripture about the abuses of sexuality or about the abuses of authority or about the abuses and the addiction to the love of money. But again, those things are not inherently wicked. So it matters that we would understand that. So that's where the temperance movement in America went off the rails. That this substance in and of itself is evil. So to enjoy these gifts, money, sexuality, within the confines of marriage, right? Power for it to be wielded, for alcohol to be consumed, for food to be eaten, all these kinds of things. For all of those things to be enjoyed in a non-abusive way is not wrong biblically. So to enjoy those gifts in a non-abusive way is not sin. That's the clear witness of Scripture. And why this really matters, like really matters. Like, do some of us in the congregation enjoy exercising certain liberties? Sure. Our enjoyment is secondary. Like if, if, we're, if we're having these conversations about pleasure, God help us. We're having conversations about this because it is really about the gospel. And I'm going to explain what I mean. The confusion of the mission of the church with social and political missions ultimately confuses the gospel itself. Let me say that again. The confusion of the mission of the church with social and political missions ultimately confuses the gospel itself. Let me say that another way. So when we teach, or convey that some kind of extra-biblical moral code is part and parcel of what it is to be a Christian, we confuse the gospel. When we teach or convey that some kind of extra-biblical moral code is part and parcel of what it is to be a Christian, we confuse the gospel. And that's a problem. It's very easy in our context for our view to for our view excuse me of morality to become a lot more victorian than it is christian victorian meaning an era in english history that was really characterized by honestly like prudish morality like really intense strict standards of morality that were not grounded in the bible they were grounded in other things so we can become victorian really easily or we can just become all about morals but they've been unhitched from the Bible, and that's a problem. 
So I'm not aiming to be provocative when I say what I'm about to say. I'm aiming to be helpful. Abstinence from alcohol is not the high watermark of sanctification. Abstinence from alcohol is not the high watermark of sanctification. Fill in the blank. Abstinence from whatever is not the high watermark of sanctification. Why? Well, Muslims abstain from alcohol. Secular people that I know at the gym don't drink because they think it's horrible for the temple of their body. And then, not only Muslims abstaining and secular people abstaining, and then if there's any any question or confusion, the Mormons will come in and condemn us all for not just drinking alcohol, but even having coffee in the morning. Right? So abstinence from certain things is never the high watermark of sanctification. That is a heart reality. So like another way to say this, if your definition of holiness looks like what a faithful Mormon would do every day, your definition of holiness is whack. Like it's wrong. And so this, this is really important, friends, for our church. And again, I'm not trying to be punchy, but the gospel's at stake. I'm going to tell a story to close. I'm almost done. This is kind of like an urban legend now within certain, certain evangelical circles. There was a famous evangelical leader that many in this room would love and know and would have read his books, myself included. He had a group of donors, like big, like potential supporters, I think, of his ministry coming to town. And they were going to go out and eat a nice meal, kind of get to know each other, wine and dine a little bit. And, hey, talk about the ministry and how you could support us. Well, they get to dinner, and this evangelical leader's sitting at the table, and there's a few of these potential donors, and kind of the, the spokesperson for the group is, is a lady sitting at the other end of the table. And the server comes over to the table, as they typically do. Hey, would you like anything to drink besides water? Can we offer you some wine, maybe a cocktail, or something like that? And as the story goes, the woman takes her glass, flips it over, and looks at the server and says, of course we will not be drinking tonight. We're Christians. And then this evangelical leader, without missing a beat, says, in that case, I'll have a scotch. What's the point? The point is not to be a jerk. The point is not to shame anybody. The point is this. I will happily lay down my liberty for the sake of a weaker brother or sister anytime. If there is a person that even if they're not the weaker brother or sister, but they just have a real issue with something, it's not going to cause them to sin, but they just are really like uncomfortable around drinking. I will happily lay down my liberty for that person often. But if a person believes that abstinence from alcohol or any other liberty that is permissible biblically, if they think abstinence from that is necessary, then that is an opportunity in my mind to say, in that case, I'll have a scotch. Because we want to blow up that kind of like really off-centered thinking that starts to bind everybody's consciences in a way that the Bible does not. So friends, in conclusion, in Christ, we're free. We're free from all of these like things like sin and its dominion, death and fear of the grave, bondage under the law, condemnation and fear. And we are free in Christ to love one another from the heart, really. So if there's anything that's going to govern our use of liberty in this church, it's love. It's not some extra biblical moral code. It's love. We're going to love one another and we're going to consider others as more important than ourselves.
So you can make it a practice, perhaps, to pray that for our church, that that would characterize us, love for one another. And now I'm going to turn it over to Ron and let him make a few comments, and then we'll take questions. All right, so I'll, uh, I'll be brief in my comments, but uh, I'm going to basically, some, some in the room are familiar with some of my history um, before I became a Christian, um, my wife especially, because she was married to me at the time. Um, but I want to give you guys just some context as my previous, previous experience as it pertains to alcohol um, before I became a Christian, and then once the Lord saved me, and then how, you know, how that's been even since then. Um, so uh, some of you aren't familiar, so I want to I want to help you and just understand where I'm coming from. Um, and I, I say all this, I, I want to be clear. Like I, I'm not telling you guys this to brag or to boast in any kind of way or anything like that. Okay. Um, this there was some real damage done in my life, um, you know, from these uh, these issues. Um, but also, you know, I want you to understand that. Um, you know, God, just like Justin said, God is the one who defines sin, and God trains our conscience by His Spirit through His Word, and that really does happen, right? So I'll just start off a little bit just about who I was prior to coming to Christ. So alcohol was a big issue for me growing up, um, from like age 16 to even my mid-20s. Um, I didn't grow up in the church or anything like that. I drank all the time. Um, my goal, uh, no matter what it was, uh, whether beer liquor, wine, whatever it was. I mean, even like wine coolers, you know, Zimas, if you guys remember those back in the day. Um, you know, it wasn't because I liked the taste. I wasn't drinking it because I thought it was, you know, it tastes great. My goal was to get drunk every single time. Um, so that carried on into the time where I joined uh, the military. And, uh, you know, I even developed this, this understanding that, you know, alcohol, everything's more fun with alcohol right? Like alcohol enhanced everything. Like I couldn't have a good time unless I had a beer in my hand or something else going on. Like if that wasn't going to happen, then I don't want any part of it. That's more or less my attitude. Um, and then as I was in the military, I was in the Marine Corps. Uh, I joined in 2000, 2000, August of 2000. And drinking and the Marine Corps go hand in hand. I mean, that's, you know, it, it, there's a lot of drinking going on. I, there were times where I'd get off of work at like 10 a.m. And the first thing we would do is go to the uh, little, uh, they call it a PX. Uh, it's a store, like a convenience store. And we go and just buy a case of beer and start drinking that early. You know, um, So when I tell you alcohol was a real big issue for me, it was. Um, so fast forward a little bit. I meet Leisha. Um, you know, she obviously knew me in the Marine Corps. She knew how much, you know, uh, I drank. Um, we began dating, um, got engaged. Uh, we're I was married. Um, we moved to Florida, uh, and the drinking continued, right? I'm still, you know, at this point in my life, I haven't come to Christ. Um, so there was a lot of damage, uh, even with my alcoholism at that point, uh, just to my marriage and um, with my kids. Uh, my wife hated it. Uh, she didn't really enjoy it. I was a different person when I was drunk. Um, most people are. Uh, I, um, it was basically an idol. It was a god to me. Um, you know, I'd get mad at her. Um, she even got to the point to where she was just so fed up with me at points she would pour alcohol down the sink. Um, so, again, it was it was a serious issue. So fast forward a little bit more, um, 2009-ish, fall of 2009, I believe, around that time. Uh, Alicia um, 
the Lord saved her, and then through her, saved me. And I started attending church, and uh, alcohol was such like this big evil thing in my life um, that at that point, obviously the wisest thing for me to do was just completely cut off all alcohol. Um, and that's what I did. Um, and, you know, things improved in certain ways. Um, the Lord saved me. Thankful that he did. Uh, my marriage improved. My relationship with my kids improved. Uh, alcohol kind of just faded, you know, to the background, which was, which, which, it's what I needed uh, at that point in my life. Uh, but then I also went to the extreme to start viewing it as just an evil substance. You know, it was inherently evil, as Justin was uh, talking about earlier. That's how I viewed alcohol. So that started to play out in different ways, too, because now, you know, I don't drink anymore, and, you know, I'm a Christian, and it almost became, well, not almost, but it, it became a point of pride in me, uh, to the point to where if you told me you were a Christian, I saw you drinking a beer, whether you are getting drunk or not, I'd say there's no way you're a Christian. Like, I would call your the genuineness of your profession of faith into question. Um, it became just this, again, like I said, a point of pride. I thought I was super holy and sanctified because I didn't drink alcohol. Um, it also affected my family in different ways, too. Um, you know, Leisha uh, has never really had an issue with alcohol at all. Um, but because of me and my issue, uh, she thought it best for her not to drink. Um, and, and that was good. That's what I needed. She loved me in that way. She laid down that, that liberty, so to speak, for my benefit. Um, and I'm, I'm thankful she did because, you know, there was no stumbling going on there. So she was very aware of that. But then also there's times where she would want to, to have a drink. But then she understood my view and the way I um, looked at alcohol as this evil thing that she wouldn't do that because I would more or less be calling her salvation into question, too. Um, and then even around the dinner table, as we would eat dinner with our kids, if our kids were, you know, or if we went out to a restaurant, for example, uh, and they saw somebody else drinking, they would make it a big deal. Like, oh, my goodness, look at them. They're drinking. This is terrible. They're a terrible person just because they're having a drink, right? Not knowing anything about the person or anything or anything else. They would just see that and say, this is, this is wrong. So my view started to kind of, um, you know, blend into my family's views. And it caused some unhealthy things because now we're, we're thinking, you know, is this really good that our kids think that anybody who drinks alcohol is just this terrible, evil person? Um, you know, and, and it really what it comes down to is alcohol in itself is not evil. What, what the problem was, was my heart the whole time. My heart made this an idol in my life. And over time, you know, now, now, is it, was it wise for me to stop drinking, stop getting drunk? Absolutely. Was it sin to get drunk? Absolutely. Um, is that what I needed at that point in my life? Yes, it was. But for me to be that extreme in my view, and even to look at other Christians in a judgmental way to say that I'm almost, I'm, I'm more holy. I would have said that. I'm more holy than they are because they drink. That's, that's not right. That's a hard issue, too. Either way, right? Um, so I, want, I, I say all this because I don't know what you guys are thinking, right? Like, I don't know what your experiences are, just like some of you didn't know what my experiences were before until I just told you. And that's just like the, the Cliff Notes version. If you really want to talk to me about it, I'll go, you know, we can spend some time, go get a cup of coffee, I'll tell you the whole story. Um, but I, I say all this because I, we need to be careful either direction, right? So if, if we... If we have an issue with alcohol, one, we need to make that known, right? We, we need to make that known. 
just as a Christian church family, you know, this is a problem for me. I don't drink. Okay, but then also, we don't need to start binding other people's consciences or expecting them to live as the way we do. You know what I'm saying? Because that's, that's pride in itself. And it's not okay for me to look at another Christian and say, just because you drink, or just because I don't drink, I'm better than you. Obviously, that's wrong. Okay? So I say all this because I've been to that one extreme. And I'm not, you know, I'm, again, I'm not you know, saying like I'm a finished product up here. You know, I got it. I'm just completely sanctified in every single way. I'm not. Um, but I've gotten to the point to where, you know, in God's, through God's word, um, that I've retrained my conscience in that way. Um, extremes are bad. And typically, as, as, as young baby Christians, that's kind of where we go, right, with things, you know, whether it be alcohol or Halloween or movies or whatever. Um, but we have to be very, very careful not to call something sin that isn't sin. God has given people alcohol. Now, do we abuse it? Sure. Just like we abuse sex. We abuse money and power and all these other things that Justin, you heard him say earlier. But we just need to be very careful not to put our own um, expectations onto other people.